You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. This is a treat. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director of BMO Capital Markets, joins us uh, via the phone. And Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, And Jennifer, I'm going to start with you. We had Christine Lagarde today, uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell yesterday. Let's talk central banks. What's going on out there with the central bankers globally? Uh-huh. You tell me, we'll both be the one. <laughs> okay. You know, I think I think everyone. It was funny with uh, just Jimmy uh, and on the Fed for a second. You know, I thought there was a little bit of something for everyone in that press conference, but I was leaning towards the the view that he was more hawkish. Uh, than I think what the market was initially thinking. Um, the Bank of England, I have no idea. It was, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> um, it was a bit mixed, but it sounds like they're towards the end of their rate hikes. And the ECB was all in hawkish. I, I was calling. It was interesting how the entire governing council seems to be on board this, this the SS hawkish ship, and is led by Christine Lagarde, Captain Lagarde. Um, and it I think like you have to call her Madam again. Lagarde. There's an unwritten rule. You don't call anybody else Mr. or Mrs. anything, but in her case, it has to be Madam. Okay. I don't... Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, I I can see another rate hike coming um, after March, but, you know, it's all going to be data dependent. I don't know about, you know, the ECB and the BOE, but in terms of the Fed, you know, my wife always says, I don't care what you say. Your actions speak much louder than your words. And they only hiked a measly, good-for-nothing 25 basis points. Not to mention the fact that... um, They see disinflation, he admitted. He waffled on the question, Powell, about whether or not anyone talked about a pause. Last time he just said no, point blank. And they're data dependent. So what is the point of telling me what you plan to do, maybe if the data goes your way, and then saying you're data dependent, Danielle? So look, I think it's all very nuanced. We forget that the way the CPI is constructed is changing before our very eyes. Used car prices, which are coming down hard, that weight's going to be reduced. New York rents, which spiked after the entire rest of the country, that's 11% of shelter in, the, in, in, in inflation. That's going to feed through with a lag. There are many cases to be made for inflation being higher in the second half of the year than what the market is currently anticipating. What I think was the most dovish, what I think turned markets around yesterday the hardest was when he was specifically asked about the jolts data, 
which mm-hmm. was obviously yep. stronger than what was ex- that was that was why markets freaked out going into the Fed yesterday. Was Jolts was so strong, north of 11 million openings again, 1.92 per every for um, for, for every o- opening. Um, anyways, he did cite that, but then he faded it. He well, was like, eh, you know, <laughs> when he faded Jolts, markets turned tail and went straight to the moon. Did I mean? Did I misunderstand? Did I maybe mishear? Or did he say financial conditions were tightening? He said, and then that, I have to ask: yeah. In what universe yeah. does no, Jay Powell live? Exactly, because because financial conditions have given back everything all the way until February of 2022. It's as if the Fed has not hiked a one basis point. Forget 25 or unusually large, uh, 75 times four plus 50, plus 25. But but he did say that he anticipated that in time, ultimately, financial conditions would reflect his the restrictive stance of monetary policy. I, again. Yesterday was just wishy-washy. Yeah, Jennifer, I want to get your opinion here. I mean, the markets have been saying, well, the Fed officials and central bankers around the world have been saying they've been talking tough. We're going to keep rates higher. We're not going to turn tail. But the markets are saying not so fast. I mean, the markets are pricing in rate decreases at the end of the year. How do you think about that dichotomy? Uh you know, in, in many ways, this is all, you know, the communications, and it sounds like it's being muddled again, um, just given, you know, just everyone here on this on this call, too. Um, but, I, you know, we have been always of the view that, uh, you know, the rate cuts would not be uh, seen this year. Um, but I guess the, the scary part is that, you know, that, you know, as they was saying, we were, we were talking about the JOLTS data, the employment data. You know, he was saying that it's still, you know, that the job market is way too strong. And uh, it almost, you know, frightens me to think, you know, what are they willing to do to, to cause the, the labor market to almost buckle, it seems, in order to bring inflation back down to 2%. And it sounds like they're going to keep it, you know, higher for longer. All right. I have a listener who's written in. Okay. He sent me a chart of different countries' inflation data. I just showed it to Danielle because I don't really know what to do with it. (laughs) But um, he's saying uh, and, and asking a question, what happens to markets if we become it, like in the 1970s, we pause and then have to hike again. And this, I thought, was a concern, but um, I guess they're data dependent, so they're willing to change the way they're going every single meeting. No, no, no. I, I, no, 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 no. I'm going to okay. push back on this. Okay. Because he was asked that question specifically yesterday, and he said, I don't mind if we over tighten because we cannot pull the genie back into the bottle if inflation gets re released. He's right. like, if we tighten too much, we've got tools to bring it back down. But okay. he said, I will not stop until I'm convinced that we don't have to go back in. So he, again, there was so much that he said yesterday that was flat out ignored. And he was very articulate and emphatic in saying, I don't care if we go too far. Hmm. Well, Jennifer, the, the market still clearly doesn't believe uh, that the Fed is going to raise rates past you know, 5%. Um, at least that's not, the pricing on WIRP Go shows me that the market doesn't buy that. And the market still is pricing in cuts this year. In fact, two. So what does that mean to you uh, at BMO um, that, 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 the, that this Fed doesn't have credibility or that um, the market thinks Powell is going to change his course? Why? Jennifer. I don't know if they're going to change their course. The market is thinking that. I, I, it sounds like they're almost ignoring 
uh, everything he is saying. But, you know, again, for the way, to what Danielle was just saying, I mean, he did say yesterday about history cautioning against prematurely loosening policy. And, and he said that before was at, uh, at Jackson Hole when, you know, when he first made that comment and he's still standing by that. And I think it's, it's, it's better to, as they have said before, to tighten too much than, than, than not tighten enough. And, uh, again, they have, uh, you know, they have the tools to, to back down on that. Even um, Lagarde this morning, she was saying, do not doubt us, do not doubt our resolve to bring inflation back down to target. And I think that's what, again, same thing, she's trying to make sure that their credibility is intact. Um, and and just, just continue to talk. But of course, you know, the market seems like it's looking at the other way. All right, we are breaking this down. We have a Fed roundtable here. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets, and Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO of Quill uh, uh, Intelligence. Uh, Danielle, I'm looking at my eco screen. I got a lot of eco data this morning, and I see a lot of some negative numbers here. I mean, factory orders, X transportation, minus 1.2%. The consensus was positive 0.2%. Durable goods, uh, X transportation, negative 0.2%. Consensus was negative 0.1%. Am I seeing a recession in my economy here? What, what am I seeing with these negative oh, numbers? You, look, the National Bureau of Economic Research follows um, real disposable income, ex-government transfers. That's that's in the tank. Industrial industrial production, yuck. What we just got out feeds GDP. The the data that you specifically cited, the, the, the disappointed to the downside, especially on the on the shipments, that feeds into GDP. Ben Herzon is my favorite. Uh, he, he was at Macro Economic Advisors, then IHS Market bought them out, then S&P Global. Anyways, <laughs> he basically created the GDP model. And right now he's at negative 1.5%. After the data we just got out this morning, he's gonna be taking that Q1 number down below negative 1.5%. Okay, so that's the answer. Yes, we are in recession. Okay. So Jennifer, what do you think? Um, we still have, we, you know, we've always been penciled in. We've always had that, uh, uh, two negative quarters, uh, by definition, penciled into our, uh, into this year. Um, but, you know, we, we continue to see, you know, some sort of a, a bounce back or a recover, a little bit of a recovery in the second half. But, you know, aver- averaging out to, you know, still about almost like a flat, flat year. So I think this year is almost going to be a write off still. Um, of course, what happens next year is another story. But, um, right now, I mean, it's like, here's another thing. I mean, we were talking about the data this morning and we know how extremely volatile the factory orders data are. But, you know, we at least we got that bounce back yesterday in, in auto sales. I mean, of course, it was a big drop in December, so it's almost like a wash for the two for the two months. So I wouldn't completely discount, um, um, you know, for example, the U.S. consumer just yet. But obviously, all these rate hikes are finally, finally trying, uh, starting to make uh, make their mark on the economy. Daniel, let's talk about the labor market here. Uh, again, we had an initial jobless claims print, 183,000. That was lower than expected. Another print below 200,000, which economists tell me is, is kind of important. Jobless and non-farm payrolls tomorrow, we get that data. Uh, the consensus is uh, 190,000 added. Boy, this is a strong labor market. Is there anything that breaks this labor market? It sure looks like it's a strong labor market on the surface, doesn't it? Yes. Because this morning, Challenger Gray and Christmas came out and said layoffs in January. For the month of January, that was the weakest January since 2009. Okay. They, they said that hiring announcements were cut in by 58% between December and January. And by the way, the Department of Labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're already pretty clear that they're having trouble with seasonal adjustments post-pandemic. I've been tracking Mm. closely Google Trends, file for unemployment, people searching for file for unemployment. It's tracking right alongside not seasonally adjusted, continuing claims, which popped up again to 1.9 million 
this week they're up 60% off their lows, not seasonally adjusted continuing claims. So under the surface, it's Under the surface, than... it's much weaker than it appears on the headline. But if we're talking about the Fed, Jay Powell doesn't appear to care. He's going to follow the headlines that suit him. I can tell you all the Sweeney offspring are employed. That's good. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. Well, they should be, right? If there are two jobs out there for every single person who's exactly. unemployed. Yeah. I mean, there's 11 million job openings. I thought, again, the Boeing interview that Guy uh, Johnson did the other day was amazing. And the CEO of Boeing said, look, every time, basically he said, I'm paraphrasing, every time Microsoft or Amazon lays off a smart engineer, we're going to go scoop them up. <laughs> That's so right. you do see some pink slips out there on the West Coast, but that doesn't mean those people aren't getting jobs right away again. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Boeing never should have left Seattle, by the way. That's my number one call. Um, Jennifer, when, when you take a look at this economy here, what's your real call here for 23, 24? I mean, is this a recession? If so, is it a shallow one? How, what, to what level does the economy in North America bounce back if, in fact, we, we do go into a recession. How do you guys think about that at BMO? Well, right now, everything's obviously fluid. Um, as again, as I said, you know, we're looking for a, a flat-ish um, um, year for 2023, decline the first half, better second half. And then, you know, some sort of a recovery as, as rate cuts start to take hold or start to kick in probably in 2024. Uh, you know, uh, again, this is all goes back to how it's how intentional the, the, the Fed is going to be in keeping rates up at these restrictive levels um, for how long as well. And what I guess what is, is a little bit is, is puzzling to I think everyone is going to be, the, again, the job market and the fact that we still have over 10 million job openings out there. You know, at some point, those ones are going to be the ones to be cut first. Um, it's almost like a lot of fat before you get to the bone. Um, but we still expect, you know, unemployment to start rising the longer that the uh, uh, rate still is, you know, the, the Fed stays um, 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 tight yep. uh, with, their, with their conditions, you know, and, and keep rates higher for longer. So um, if, if I could just jump in here on jolts, I think one of the reasons that the Fed chair faded it yesterday is because joint research between the St. Louis Fed and the Dallas Fed showed that about 90% of all job openings are for the purpose of poaching your closest competitor's worker. That's what I was wondering about. Because and why is the jolts number so strong when ADP isn't? Because another, yeah. you're, you're trying to get your competitor's worker and not have to pay yep. to train them, just right. like Boeing said. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, good stuff. Fed roundtable like only Bloomberg Radio can do. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director with BMO Capital Markets, joining us on the phone. And Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, breaking down the Fed speak we've heard over the last 24 hours. Eco data, lots going on, a lot of crosswinds for investors. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I want to bring in uh, right now Hugh Roberts at Quant Insight to talk to us about what we saw yesterday um, with the Fed and what we're seeing today with the BOE and the ECB. Basically, all this big central bank action is moving markets pretty substantially. So, Hugh, uh, you were with us on television yesterday, and I'm glad you could join us on radio today. We get a little bit more time. Um, Let me first get your reaction to what we saw yesterday. Was it more dovish than you would have expected? Um, well, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway is that um, Chair Powell and the broader Fed clearly think about financial conditions um, in a different way to, to most of the mainstream market. Uh, was that just like a slip up or did I mean, so Powell was asked about yeah. financial conditions loosening and they're looser by Bloomberg's measure, by Goldman Sachs measure, by Wall Street measures than they have your own uh, uh, your own measures than they have been in like a year. Right. So was it just a mistake that he made? Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen some conspiracy theories. I have to confess, I'd missed that he'd actually suffered from a bout of COVID. And I saw one conspiracy theory saying, you know, was it just a subpar performance because um, uh, he's still suffering a little bit on the health front? I don't know about that. I mean, I think taking a step back, there's always a danger that we all start to overanalyze and overthink certain things. You know, we have had the most interesting bit of pushback in the last 24 hours that I've seen is the Fed's unofficial press spokesman operating out of the Wall Street Journal has today pointed us in the direction of a Brainard speech from two weeks ago, and uh, which um, opens with a comment about overall financial conditions. And two things come out from that speech. One is just a time frame um, that they're looking almost year on year. So they're looking at a much longer history compared to the likes of ourselves who say, well, look at the unwinding of the financial conditions we've seen in the last six months or so. And then secondly, um, if you look at the specific references in that speech, there is no equity market component and so no wealth effect component. It cites real yields in particular. That's probably the most overweighted um, uh, variable. But hang on, Hugh. So so Brainerd also said financial conditions are tightening. And uh, this is interesting because I was talking with you about this um, yesterday. If you take out the stock market effects, Aren't financial conditions still pretty loose? Yeah, so that's, that would be the timescale point that we're looking at um, on our measure and like your measure. I think the, the unwind or the easing has come in the last six months or so. And the Brainard speech, and I think maybe there, whether it was a slip of the tongue or just whatever it was from Powell yesterday, was actually a much longer horizon. They were saying over the duration of their tightening cycle, from where we were a year ago, conditions are still tighter. So it's, to a degree, it's where you stop the clock, if you see what I mean. Hugh, so there is a disconnect, uh, obviously, between what we're hearing from the central bankers, including Madame Lagarde today, uh, in terms of, you know, talking the, the, the talk and a tough fight. We're going to keep rates higher for, for longer. And the market's just not buying it. How unusual is that dichotomy in the marketplace? Uh, it's one of the more aggressive examples. I agree totally. I mean, uh, to see such a coordinated response, you know, with the, the event risk we had this week between the Fed yesterday, the ECB and the Bank of England, 
And in each instance, for the bond market to react the way there is, the repricing we've seen at the front end, um, I'm struggling off the top of my head to think of many examples where the market has so aggressively and so uniformly flown in the opposite direction to the, the, the mantra from central banks. I agree, we're, we're in fairly unprecedented territory. And it does make you think that that we're coming to a, you know, a rather severe pinch point at some stage. You know, either the market's pricing has to be vindicated um, or we're just going to make this worse. And I guess that's part of the reason, I guess, to justify our actions in terms of us all trying to analyze the Fed going into last night's meeting. I think one of the motivations everyone had in the back of their mind was, that, you know, is the whole kind of stitch in time type um, approach that you need to get in front of this. Otherwise, if you allow this kind of almost irrational exuberance you could classify it as to get too far carried away, that when the day of reckoning comes and if the Fed and the ECB version of events is proved right, then the repricing then becomes that much more severe. And the trouble with that is not just from a financial market perspective, but the transmission through to the real economy. Does it then start to really really make what could have been a soft landing? Could they clutch defeat from the jaws of victory? We're on for a soft landing, but the repricing makes it a hard landing. So that's because the market is pricing in a couple of cuts this year, and you're saying if the Fed just holds high, you know, after another rate rise or two at five and a quarter percent, and doesn't cut um, by the end of this year, even if the data shows they should, that's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, that that, and also, as I say, just the fact that if you have too big a disconnect between what the central bank is trying to do and what financial markets are pricing, then at some point something has to give. That elastic can only go so far, I would argue. And then there comes a point where if the Fed's version of events proves true and the higher for longer scenario wins out, the implication to that is quite an aggressive sell-off in risky assets. And that hurts the real economy through the wealth effect for equities, corporate America's ability to finance itself through wider credit spreads, stronger dollar, et cetera, et cetera. So, Hugh, when you look at the market over the past two days, I mean, yesterday a strong move, today a very strong move. We got the S&P up 1.4%, the NASDAQ up 2.9%, just really significant moves does that seem like an overreaction to you from this market or just more of the same? This is a market that's really much more optimistic or bullish than maybe the central bankers are. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were inclined, um, I think up until you know, the last 24 hours, we were inclined to think that there was a bit of positioning and sentiment um, dynamics at work. You know, I think sentiment in equity markets has been poor, but positioning probably wasn't as bearish as everyone thought. I think there was an element of just straight rotation. You know, 2022's winners have become 2023's laggards and vice versa. Um, and on our modeling, um, although something like NASDAQ or XLK or anything vaguely tech-related was modestly rich, it wasn't crazy extended. It's now starting to look a little bit more stretched and it's starting to look like the move is moving further away from macro fundamentals. So, um, I think up until now, we would have said it's been a relatively orderly move, but this is beginning to raise eyebrows. All right, Hugh. Key question. Uh, your offices are based uh, right there in Liverpool Street, right in the city of London. How is the city of London today? Today's Thursday. Crowded. How's the tube? Are people back in the office? What's going on in the city? Yeah, it feels like, I mean, by and large, things are back to normal. I mean, the, 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 the kind of pre-post-COVID dynamics, I think, has largely worked through. There's a lot of hybrid working models, but on the whole, foot traffic is normal. 
Obviously, where the UK is a slight outlier is with all the industrial action, which has just made things much worse. So, you know, on any given day, there's a tube or a train strike, right. or if teachers are striking, then some people have to stay at home and do, you know, kind of um, home uh, schooling and childcare. So we, we haven't had an uninterrupted period of normal, whatever yep. normal might be, to give you a good answer, I'm afraid. All right, good stuff. Hugh Roberts, uh, the offices are on Liverpool Street, really close to Bloomberg's. Uh, London headquarters at Queen Victoria Street, just a stone's throw there in the city of London. And right by Bank. Yep, right by Bank. But their their offices are right on the Liverpool Street station, which is an awesome train station. Uh, great tube stop. Kind of can get pretty much everywhere from there. Uh, so good stuff. Hugh Roberts, he's head of analytics at Quant Insights, uh, based in the UK, giving us some thoughts on these markets. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's do something insane right now. We'll rip up the script. Okay. I've never had a five-person roundtable. Let's bring Carl Riccadonna in without Jess Menton. You're going to stay here. Bloomberg Equities reporter. Should I put on my Katie Greifeld, cross-asset maven. And Carl Riccadonna uh, joins us right now from BNP Paribas. He is chief U.S. economist. Um, Anyone feel free to jump in. But Carl, let's throw this to you. What do you make of Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, who arguably has... Um, easy access to the Bloomberg terminal, to everybody else's FCON um, index. Yesterday, he said financial conditions are tighter. What on earth was he talking about? Well, man, I was as perplexed as everyone else sitting around the table. Good morning to you all. Uh, but I also uh, then quickly said, well, if, if they're not looking at FCON on the Bloomberg terminal, which I think is a, a great uh, index, which I've worked with a, a lot in the past, uh, they're probably looking at one of their own indices. And so I pulled up that Chicago Fed index, and sure enough, uh, it's a little bit less of a dramatic story than what FCON is showing. Uh, but if we look at that Bloomberg index, it's telling us financial conditions are easier now than they were at the start of the Fed's tightening campaign last year. So regardless of whatever Powell said during the press conference, uh, Bloomberg financial conditions, which has a high correlation with GDP, it's been cited in Fed research papers because of its prowess as a predictive tool for uh, GDP growth, economic activity, uh, it is easing and it's telling you unless they fix the narrative and financial markets get the message, uh, we could be looking at a reacceleration in the economy, which in turn would undermine all of their efforts mm-hmm. to get the inflation genie uh, back in the bottle. And uh, we could be looking at you know a, a very difficult inflation landscape going forward, which is not what the Fed wants to be confronting. 
So, Carl, this is Katie Greifeld. It is thrilling to talk to you. I will say my heart rate is 60 right now, which oh boy. is pretty high for me. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that you also went to the Chicago Fed measure. Uh, and it does, I mean, the absolute levels are a little bit different from the Bloomberg measure by the Chicago Fed's absolute level. They are tighter than they were at the start of the hiking cycle, but still, they've been loosening. I want to talk about why it matters. I mean, you mentioned that this could undermine the Fed's, you know, inflation fighting campaign, but walk us through how that actually works, because I feel like we talk about financial conditions all the time without actually defining them. Yes. So financial conditions, whether it's a Bloomberg metric or the Chicago Fed's metric, the Bloomberg metric, very efficient because it has just a, a narrow, um, uh, a small number of uh, inputs. I think it's probably about 10 inputs. Uh, Chicago Fed has something like 100 inputs, uh, but they both tell the same story. So even though the Chicago Fed uh, index has been a little uh, less dramatic in the signal it's sending, uh, these things matter because either index correlates well with GDP growth. And we know the Fed has to slow the economy down from that 12.5% growth rate that we were uh, registering in the middle of 2021, uh, and it has to hold the economy at a below-trend growth rate. Now, some folks, like myself, will say that means they have to cause a recession to create some dislocation in the labor market. Uh, other folks, including Jerome Powell and a lot of Fed officials, including, uh, I think, Governor Waller as well, are saying, no, 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 we, we don't need to cause recession. We can just push growth below its trend rate and hold it there for an extended period of time, that will create slack in the economy, ease labor pressures, and ease the inflation pressures as well. Um, that's something that they've actually never done in the past. So uh, that's why we're a bit skeptical that it won't ultimately tilt us into recession. If you push the economy to a slow enough growth rate, it becomes very sensitive to exogenous shocks and, and resilience won't be the story, fragility will be the story, and then you get a recession anyways. Um, but nonetheless, if you're not keeping the brake pedal on and financial conditions tell us how well the Fed is keeping their foot on the brake pedal, uh, then you're not going through that low growth regime that accomplishes your inflation goals. I think that's a real risk. That's where the tension is in the markets, which are still saying the Fed will stop sooner and start easing sooner uh, than what the Fed is saying. So just to put a, a full circle around it, I think we've seen this uh, drama play out before. It was last summer uh, in July. The Fed teased the idea that they may need that there would be some uh, point where they would be willing to downshift the pace of tightening. The markets went haywire, uh, went too far with that narrative. And then we go from the July FOMC meeting to the Jackson Hole Fed policy conference in late August. Uh, and Jerome Powell comes in, rips up the script uh, and delivers a very hawkish direct message saying, OK, markets are not listening Let's all get on the same page here. Uh, and he largely accomplished that goal. But then uh, we're kind of right, right back to, to square one where they need to have a, a reprise, if you will, or a rerun of that Jackson Hole uh, messaging campaign. Carl, this is Jess. It's good to talk to you again. Something that I'm looking ahead to, we will get another update on CPI on Valentine's Day. And so this will be for the month of January. And I am aware that the CPI, there is going to be a reweighting. And this does happen at times. Um, but I have talked to certain economists who have argued that potentially this could push down CPI faster, just given what's happening if you're looking at the reweighting. Potentially, there could be larger weights in autos, maybe notably rents potentially could fall. But then I've had 
other economists argue that you might actually see more of a boost in the first quarter towards core CPI. And so it's kind of been split when I've talked to economists. And so I was curious if that's something that you have been focusing on just yet and what your expectations are, if there is could be any sort of changes there as far as what that could mean when we are still looking very closely at those inflation numbers. Yes. So to kind of uh, summarize the landscape for the listeners, uh, they reweight the components in the CPI. So the, 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 the weighting factors we give to the various components. Uh, and to the extent that in recent years, there's been more spending on goods, which was the story during the pandemic. We couldn't go to restaurants. We couldn't go on vacation. Uh, we bought lots of things on, uh, online and whatnot. Uh, we see it in the income and spending numbers, and it will be reflected in the CPI numbers as well as those weighting factors change. So if goods inflation is running cooler and we're giving them a higher weighting factor, that could reset the CPI uh, marginally or incrementally lower. Uh, It doesn't change the narrative, though. So this is a little bit of uh, dithering over the details. Uh, It won't happen in the core PCE deflator or the Fed's PCE deflator, the the metric they like to, to, to track. Um, so so it's, an, it's a nuanced story, but it doesn't change the inflation landscape. Is the CPI now different from what we had in the 70s? And by the way, Matt Miller here. Uh, I have a beard. Um, <laughs> do, do you do you think the comparisons to the 70s are fair? Because a lot of people are asking today, what if, uh, you know, this dovish Fed has to turn hawkish Carl's again not when inflation comes back? <laughs> I remember elements of the 70s, Paul. And there was, there was some great television programming and, oh, yeah. uh, and great, uh, Starsky great, and Hutch. great music back then, Paul. Uh, uh, but uh, t- to Matt's point, so th- the CPI does evolve over time. So, of course, the weighting factors are different than where we were in the 70s. So how much we spend on rent and housing versus goods or food or energy, uh, that has evolved over time. Also, there have been methodological changes to the CPI, so the way they count housing costs and rents and shelter uh, has changed a lot. So it, it's not your father's, or, or we'll say it's not Paul Sweeney's yes. uh, CPI. Um, but nonetheless, it, it gives you a sense of the direction of price pressure in the economy. The other key difference I'll draw to the 1970s. So we can say, sure, inflation's running as hot as it was in the, the early 1980s. Uh, it's a very different landscape. So the inflation that Paul Volcker had to confront in the early 1980s was really 15 years in the making, right? It started in Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and the spending on the Vietnam War, two oil crises that changed to foreign exchange policy globally, uh, a lot of shocks that had eroded the psychology. Uh, The problem that Jerome Powell is confronting was really 15 months in the making, so a much more surgical solution. All right, Carl, great stuff. As always, Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist from BNP Paribas, phoning it in, I will note. Uh, but Jess Metten. He was here in the office yesterday. Was he? Yeah. Okay, so we'll give him some credit there. Jess Metten, Katie Greifeld, they're from Bloomberg News. They're in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They get the gold stars today. All right, kids, we all know the adage, don't fight the Fed. But the market seems to be fighting the Fed. The Fed's talking tough, but the market's just not buying it. Uh, so let's break down what's going on out there in the market. We got the equity markets ripping again today. You got yields coming down pretty substantially. Let's check in with Ben Emmons. He's a senior portfolio manager and head of fixed income at New Edge Wealth. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Ben, we had the Fed yesterday, the Bank of England, uh, the ECB today. A lot of people talking tough uh, as it relates to holding the line on rates, but the market's saying not so much. What do, what do you make of it? Yeah, the tougher they sound and the more hawkish they sound, again, another reason for markets to rally. And 
I think it was really triggered by that word disinflation that Powell said yesterday. So the market is discounting an even faster disinflation for CPIs. I was listening. That means CPI goes down even quicker, faster than what the Fed is forecasting. And as the Fed continues to talk tough, then the market says, okay, you're not only going to reach 2% uh, for sure, you're going to reach it much faster. And it triggers this major rally because at the end, if you, if you do get faster than 2% inflation, one, you don't have to hike anymore. Two, at some point, the Fed also may have to consider to cut rates and playing into the market expectations. So I think Especially if they're data-dependent, Ben. I mean, why, uh, why try even to talk tough in terms of your forward guidance if you say in the same breath that you're data-dependent? You know, it's like, I'm never going to cut rates. I will cut rates if the data tells me to. Yeah, <laughs> no, I totally agree. In fact, you know, Paul even yesterday said like, so yeah, if the markets are right, then yeah, we should factor that into our policy. <laughs> Why would you then say that you're going to hike rates? So what's interesting, Matt, is that, you know, you could maybe next week see speakers come out. If they started more and more leaning towards that idea of, yeah, the market may be right. That sounds more dovish, right? That market's getting a different sense, okay, but as inflation story is not over yet, you're getting then at some point two dovish speakers out there. That's the other side of that. At this moment, it's about too hawkish and therefore the market rallies. So um, how far can this continue? It does look much like a short, short squeeze to me. You know, the NASDAQ popping really higher this way. That's where the biggest short positions are. So that's, I think, part of the reason why we have markets higher. Well, we had Fed, I mean, I'm sorry, ECB President uh, Madame Lagarde this morning. I, I don't know, she sounded pretty hawkish to me. 50 basis points and there's more to come. But, uh, you know, I'm looking at the, the German 10-year, you know, it's it's down to 2.07% off 21 basis points today. So, again, that rhetoric did not work. No, especially when she said we intend to hike in Intend March. to hike. You guys really parse intend. that language, I yeah. tell you. If you intend to do something, that means that you may or may not. And, you know, I think that the German boom market, the entire periphery, by the way, really collapsing in yields. So they priced out the excess of hikes that were maybe sort of in the back back part of the of 2023. And not forget that the ECB put in place a program to ensure that spreads stay relatively stable while they were hiking rates. So that too, I think, is supporting the market now. Because That's that, their job. Exactly. Keeping spreads stable. Keeping that spread. She's learned. She, she learned from not saying, <laughs> we're not in the business to collapse spreads. Yes, you are. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think about, you know, the 420 or 425 that we saw on the 10-year, um, was that the peak in rates? Yeah, you could say that now, yeah, because it's, it's not going to be so easy to go back to that level unless this China reopening, which we've talked about previously. That was October 24th, also r right around the time we saw a low in equities. Yeah, low yeah. in equities, and right around the time that the first news out of China came, came out that they were looking at zero COVID in a, in a potentially different way. So that was a, a, probably the, the moment of at least the bottom. Of Do you think China plays big into um, you know the markets moves here? I mean, is it China is the reopening? Are, are people optimistic about that? Because for a while we couldn't tell which they were reopening, but they were getting you know millions of COVID cases every day, um, and also it's a different China than it was before they went into lockdown. Yeah, I do think it plays a big role because the impact is already seen through one money coming into China assets, which by the way, for example, are ETFs here listed on the exchange and people buying them here. So money's been put to work that obviously spills over into the NASDAQ, into other markets. 
But it's really, you know, you could tell from the PMI data this week just alone, out of the lunar year, immediately that PMI data recovered above 50. As one simple example, so this reopening is real. They lost about 2% of output during the COVID lockdown, so they want to get back to 5%. That's a big change. Lots of different estimates on how that impacts global GDP, but that could be up to a percent globally. And that's, that's I think, significant. It changes the outcomes on the recession that people were fearing. My view on it is that China reopening actually means the recession this year may not really happen. And it's that significant. And the, the, the commodity prices That's show very it. significant. Yeah, that is very significant. Yeah. And the, so Lagarde, interestingly, did address China today. Unlike Powell, he did not really. And she did say, we have to really take a close look at this and monitor it because they understand just like anyone. Well, Europe really has a, I don't know, they have a pronounced trade relationship with China. I think exactly. about some of these big German industrial companies exactly. and you know sending turbines over there. That's yeah. a big deal for them. Yeah, the Belt and Roads the initiative Roads. went straight up through Italy, yeah. right? Exactly. So Into the heart of Europe. So the collapse in these Bund yields and, and Italian yields today are really about the, the ECB maybe not hiking anymore after March. But if you think about the impact that China could have on those economies and thereby inflation would still really high in, each, in both these economies, that's what Lagarde was, was hinting at. And the market's not listening to that now. But that's something that will come back, I think, at some point. Now, nuance is not my strength, <laughs> um, you know. But to me, uh, so this is optimistic, right? China reopens. Um, maybe we don't get a recession in Europe. Um, these central banks are sounding dovish because inflation is coming down pretty rapidly. Um, why isn't? Why aren't we off to the races when it comes to commodities? You know, oil is still trading at eighty dollars a barrel. Um, if if all that good news was it priced in, is this the good news? Eighty two dollars a barrel, or do we still have to look forward to a hundred dollars for Brent? So that that those are expectations out there that think it we're going to go back to a hundred dollars a barrel, and that there has been I think in the oil price a liquidation that took place at the end of last year, big positioning washed out, and in addition to that, there was I think expectations in that market that as the OPEC doesn't really change output as much cut it more, say, then the recession fears do hit that that part of the commodity market a bit harder because China's pent-up demand is really through the metals market. And that part of the commodity market has really outperformed energy in other parts. In addition, like wheat, for example, that has been also depressed because the Ukraine situation is slowly further, further resolving the supply shortage, uh, even though there's ongoing war. So I think it's the metal sector that's where it's quote, quote, priced in and where it showed up first. The next stage will be that energy does pick up and, you know, by some estimates, we will have, again, really low gasoline stock this summer as we get into driving season. And my thesis on this is, is that the China effect is really the tourism issue. So recently, the Japan CPI numbers showed a big jump because of recreation. That's the first impact from China tourism that's coming on short air. It's happening in, in Australia, too. It will happen here. My say not one other thing on this. We kept just take a walk through of Times Square. That's that's my thing when I yeah. walk to Penn Station. Now, I'll give you a man on the on the ground view of what's happening. And that Europeans are back right. big time. I ha but I haven't seen Chinese per se. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's that's just coming. So you can imagine that the payroll number we get tomorrow, it may may go down a bit over the next few months because of all the layoffs. But the shortage is where it really is is in the leisure sector, and the leisure sector has been the huge contributor to payroll growth. So. If this wave of tourism is coming, well, I mean, the payroll numbers could actually start rising again, at least driven by leisure. 
Ben, uh, ben, just real quick, 30 seconds. Yep. I got the 10-year treasury, 335 here, just amazing off six basis points today. What are you telling your clients about the fixed income markets? Yeah, I've, I've continue to have an emphasis on that better yields are on the short end of the yield curve than on the, the long end of the yield curve, really because the price sensitivity of, of those securities is still really high. It's called duration, right? So, no more question. So, therefore... <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was our... Uh, producer rich truman in your ears he was telling us <laughs> tell no you. more okay. questions for you no more questions he's a micromanager he's like a helicopter mom yeah, basically and we need it basically <laughs> yeah like, that's not that's not unfair so uh, to finish it uh, uh, you know shorter maturity securities remain interesting i mean if the fed stalls out with this rate hikes does look that it's the case then there's where your yield pickup continues to be. Yep. Then ultimately those yields will decline um, as the Fed does move to a, a neutral stance. All right, good stuff. As always, uh, Ben Emmons, Senior Portfolio Manager, and he's head of the fixed income over there at New Edge Wealth, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.